0: Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Tonight, Brother Connor, as he uh, left, he asked me to continue on where he left off, from the Tower of Babel, and go on now tonight into the call of Abraham, in the end of Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. This is a very interesting story, and I hope that tonight as we go through the narrative of the call of Abraham, you'll begin to realize that there's more to this than just picking some little guy out of some little city somewhere and says, come follow me. Because how many of you have ever thought of this? And I, you know, I don't want to challenge your intellect. Uh, When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, why did Abraham follow him? Who was Abraham that he should have such a relationship with God that he would hear God's voice to start with and then obey it secondly? Have you ever thought about that? See, Abraham wasn't a good little Jew. There weren't any Jews around, okay? He was a bad little Gentile. His father was an idol maker. He came from a rotten city, he grew up in a rotten neighborhood. Okay, but yet God called him and he responded. And it's a remarkable story about a man who has nothing going for him, but he becomes the father of all who believe. A very interesting story. As we go into this, this story tonight, I want you to remember something because I know as many times as we study about the patriarchs of the Old Testament, it's a, it's a tendency in many of us, Elevate these men on pedestals as though they were something superhuman. Let me clear the board of all misconceptions. Abraham was as human as you and I are. He failed just like you and I did. If he got stuck, he bled red blood just like all of us do. Okay? He was a human being, no different than any of us, except in one simple little matter. He believed. It's just that simple. He had a relationship with God that when God told him something, he would not waver from that. And that's the only thing that separated him from anybody else in the entire world. And that's the only thing that separates any of the other great patriarchs or men of miracles in the Old Testament. There are people who were just simply willing to do what God asked them to do. And that's it. So as we look at this, the life of this man, Abraham... Just for a few minutes before we kind of get into the biblical narrative, I'd like to just kind of have you put on your imaginations for a minute and listen to a unique little story about a young man called Abram. Not too far-fetched, and I'll tell you why afterward. Back many years ago, there was a king whose name was Nimrod, who was the king of a powerful kingdom called Babylon a kingdom built on astrology and soothsaying. One day, according to his astrological abilities, Nimrod read in the stars of the birth of a challenging young man that would come to defy Nimrod in his kingdom. And this young man's name was Abraham. And because he had read this in the stars, he went to his princes and his counselors and he asked them, what should I do about this? And his princes and his counselors gave him some very solemn advice. He says, do this. Build a convention hall and demand by law in the kingdom that every pregnant woman come to this place to bear her child and then give commandments to the midwives that whenever a child is born, if it's a boy, to kill it and if it's a girl, to reward the mother very openly and with clothes and with silver because she had given birth to a child. And in the process of doing this, he agreed with that and he opened up this, this large auditorium for this purpose. And In the process of just a few short months, he executed 70,000 young male children. About this time, there was a young man whose name was Tara, whose wife's name was Emtali, and she became pregnant. And she knew of the oracle of King Nimrod and she was afraid. And so as she realized that she was pregnant and the day of her conception drew near, she ran from the city and hid in a cave. And she bore her child in a cave, not in a hospital, but in a little hole in the wall. And this young child was left there because she had to go back to the city and so she abandoned this young child. And God sovereignly came down and through the ministry of Gabriel, nurtured this young child up to become a young man. And during the course of his nurturing, God revealed himself to this young man, Abraham, to show to him that there was one true God, and it was not Nimrod. It was the God who created all things. Well, there came a day when this young man went back to his father's house, told his dad what had happened. His dad took him to show him to the king. And this young man, Abram, walks up before Nimrod, and he says, Nimrod, you're worse than a dog. You blaspheme the living God. And Nimrod was very shocked, to say the least. And he hated this man, Abraham. So what did he want to do? He threw him in prison for a year without any food or water. But again, God sent Gabriel down and he fed Abraham for one year. And at the end of that year, Nimrod, showing his defiance against this Abram, because Abram had the audacity to say that there was another god other than Nimrod, said, I'm going to build a fiery furnace and I'm going to burn the remains of Abraham, for he is surely dead. I haven't fed him for a year. So he built a fiery furnace, and they went to the prison cell to get the remains of Abraham, and they found this man very much alive. And he brought him out, and they took him to the fiery furnace to burn him, and the men who carried Abraham to the fiery furnace were themselves killed. And so when they finally catapulted Abraham, in a literal catapult, into the fiery furnace... Just as he entered into the flames, God turned the flames into flowers, and Abraham sat on top of a little pile of flowers. And there he rejoiced in his God. Well, as the tale goes on, Abraham continued his ministry, evangelizing the kingdom, telling the people of the kingdom that that Nimrod was not God, but the true and living God was. And he finally left the kingdom, and he headed for a land that God had promised him. Now, this sounds like a far-fetched tale, but Believe it or not, this is the Jewish tradition of Abraham. And this is what the rabbis and this is what the Jewish elders believe, what was part of the life of this man before the biblical narrative of Genesis chapter 12 picks up. Now, some of it's a little far-fetched, okay? I agree with that. But some of us explains a little bit to us, maybe. And don't build a church on it, okay? It's tradition. Remember that. It's tradition. It's tradition. But God had to have sovereignly met this young man somewhere in his life that when God came to him one day and says, follow me to a land you don't know anything about, Abraham said, I'll go. And he went. And he left his land. So look, and this is where we pick up on this narrative now. We pick up in the Bible, and it says here in the end of chapter 11, when it's speaking now of Terah and his family... It says, Terah begat at the age of 70 his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran died before his father. Uh, That may not seem like very much to you, but at this time in the world's history, it was extremely rare for a son to die before his father. In fact, this is only the second occurrence that we see of it in the entire Bible up to this point. The only other one was Abel, and that's because he was killed. But Nahor the son died before his father. And so it was that these men were there, and Sarai, his wife, and Milcah, the wife of Nahor, and they're all there. And Terah took his family, and they went to Haran. And there they were there till the day that Terah died. And then God sends his great commission down now to Abraham. And this is where the story picks up. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, just keep your fingers in Genesis chapter 12, but I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 7. (coughs) Acts chapter 7. And here in Acts chapter 7, we are going to see a couple little things that the Genesis narrative doesn't bring in, but yet are facts according to Stephen, the young deacon. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen now is defending his faith He is defending the accusation that is brought against him by the Sanhedrin of being a blasphemer against the living God. And as he begins to give his narrative, and here he says this, and he said in verse 2, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Macedonia before he dwelt in Haran, or Haran. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into a land which I will show thee. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into the land wherein ye now dwell. So here we see the narrative given by Stephen now of the calling of Abraham. And notice, if you will, here a couple of very important phrases. He starts off with this. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. Now, many times in the Old Testament, when God reveals himself to people, he reveals himself in different ways. You remember how he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in a burning bush. And Moses said, who do I tell them that I am? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. Jehovah, Yahweh. The I am it says, this is how God revealed himself. When he came to him later in chapters 15 and 17, and he came unto Abraham and says, I am El Shaddai. He gives him a different name now. I am the God who nourishes. I am the God who am almighty. And later in chapter 22, when he revealed himself again to Abraham on Mount Moriah, there Abraham knew him as Jehovah Jireh, their God who provides. But now in Stephen's declaration here, it says, when God appeared unto Abraham, it was not El Shaddai, it was not Jehovah-Jireh, it was not Yahweh, it was the God of glory. And why the God of glory? It's very important. Because Abraham was being called out of the symbol, the system of all that was against God, Nimrod's system. And what was Nimrod's system? We will build ourselves. We will, following after the declaration of Satan, I will exalt myself. I will be like the Most High God. Now, in contrast to all of these I wills and we wills now, God demonstrates himself to be the glorious God. Nimrod had built himself a spectacular city full of splendor and beauty and all of this, and he was demanding the glory to be given to him. But God now comes and says, I am the God that is to receive glory, the true God of glory. Notice what the word glory means as we find it back here in uh, the Hebrew language as well as in the Greek. The word means splendor or brightness. Splendor or brightness. It's used in the Hebrew language as well as the Greek for the essence and the aura that surrounded all heavenly bodies, whether planets or stars, and also heavenly creations, the seraphims, the cherubs, and the hosts of heaven. So we're seeing now an essence, a display of a heavenly characteristic, the splendor of that. We also see that it speaks of magnificence, excellence, dignity, And so that the qualities that God shows of himself as being magnificent, excellent, and full of dignity is showing that he far surpasses anything now that Nimrod could ever erect. It's interesting that the word glory is many times used synonymously with Shekinah. It's a very familiar term to many of you. The word Shekinah is used in the Hebrew to describe the glory of God that was revealed over the Ark of the Covenant. It was the bright, manifested light which was revealing the presence of God. And this was his glory. And it was oftentimes related now to the theme of light. Light. Well, when Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, the word Ur, the name Ur, means light. Except in Chaldean it means the light of the earthly or the heavenly sun, the literal sun. And they worshiped the sun in Ur of the Chaldees. But God is showing here that in a place where they worshiped a symbol of light, God brought his real light to a man who was willing to follow after that light because Abraham's path now was following the God of glory. And it says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 that the path of the just, and Abraham was just because of his faith, grows brighter and brighter until that perfect day. So the more that Abraham followed in faith, the life, and followed God now, the brighter that glory became, continuing in faith day by day as he followed after this pathway. It's just like the yellow brick road. You're following and it gets better and better. And so he's going on now, and God brings in his light It's interesting in the New Testament when you take this theme of glory, uh, two interesting scriptures I'll give you here In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says that the God of this world, it says, hath blinded their eyes, lest, and I'll read it here, it says that the God of this world hath blinded their minds of them that believe not, lest, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. What Satan is trying to do, folks, is keep the world in the dark. Very simple. Very simple. And you read all the scriptures about men loving evil, loving darkness, rather, because their deeds were evil. And you read in Ezekiel chapter 8 where you see there the leaders, the elders of the nation of Judah now hiding in a dark little forbidden cavern worshiping the images and the beasts why because they could only do it in the darkness the light of the glorious truth they didn't want to see that and so it was that light now the glorious the light shining of the gospel second first timothy chapter 1 verse 11 first timothy chapter 1 verse 11 it says here if I get the right epistle according to the glorious or the radiant gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And this is what Paul is saying now to Timothy. It's this glorious, glorious gospel in a very interesting scripture in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. Notice what it says here, and I'll begin back in verse 6 of the chapter Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. It's of faith. And so he goes on and he says then in verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham. The glorious gospel was preached to Abraham. And many of us think, well, how could that happen? You know, the gospel couldn't come, you know, until later on. No, the gospel was preached back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent and break the curse on all humanity. That, folks, is the gospel. And God came and he spoke the gospel to Abraham. And what was the gospel? Abraham Your seed is going to bless the world. And it's going to be your seed, Abraham, that's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15. And God preached the gospel to Abraham, and the glorious light of that gospel entered into this man in a city of darkness, even though it had a name that it had light. And God called him out, and glory came to this man. And Stephen's confession went on again, and it says... Men, brethren, and fathers, I would have you know that the God of glory, he appeared. He appeared. God just didn't speak to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. He revealed himself in a very unique and a very outstanding way. And he revealed himself in such a way that for the next 25 years after this now, Abraham was willing to follow him There are very few men in the Bible that God revealed himself to in an an appearing way. He did to Moses. He did to Solomon. And he did here to Abraham. He appeared unto him to show him something. And as we look at this theme of appearance, we are going to see that this is the very first time now that God has openly shown himself since the Garden of Eden. Abraham is the very first man that we have record of that God revealed himself to since Adam walked with God back in the garden. That shows us something. This Abraham is a very special individual. Adam was the first of all creation, but Adam fell. Abraham is now another first. The first of what? The first of the redemptive race. The first of the redemptive seed line. And he's going to come now, and God again is appearing and revealing himself to this head figure. And he shows now himself to him. I would really uh, challenge you to go through and read the life story of Abraham. We have no less than probably four appearances that God showed himself to this man, Abraham. How many of us would like one? Abraham had many of them, at least four. And the majority of them took place around altars. That will give us a key. Do you want to know what God is saying? Do you want to know what God is trying to reveal to his people today? God reveals himself around his altar. And that's exactly where Abraham met him. So God appeared now, and it says, And the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. Now here is a very important and I I don't want to get into here too heavy because Brother Connor touches on this a lot and I, I know his feelings. When Stephen is quoting now in the book of Acts about our father Abraham, he is quoting not because he was a little Jew. Okay? He was quoting because he was a believer. And he is quoting that Abraham is his father not by natural ancestry but by spiritual ancestry. Go through a couple of the teachings in the Gospels about this. And don't lose me. I'm not getting anti-Semitic on you. Okay? Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Verse 8. And here John the Baptist now as he's baptizing at the river and he is speaking to the people that had come down specifically to the Pharisees and the Sadducees it says, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and, be, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. He says, don't start confessing that you have Abraham as your father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You guys are coming down to the river, you want baptism and all this, and you say, Abraham's our father. And John the Baptist looks him in the face and says, that's nothing. If God wants to he can make sons and children out of the very rocks that are standing here. It says don't take pride in your lineage. Don't take pride in your natural ancestry. Jesus himself in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come down to him and they were always using this as one of their great arguments in verse 39, he says this of them. Start back in verse 38. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. Abraham didn't do that. He didn't desire to kill me. In fact, he goes on in verse 56 in that same chapter and says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And Jesus looked at them straight in the eye and it says, You claim to be sons of Abraham? It says, No. Then do the works of Abraham. Do the works. Because you want to kill me, but Abraham never wanted to kill me. He looked forward to me. So what Jesus was pointing to and what Luke is pointing to in his scriptures and the same what Stephen was pointing to here now. Abraham, this man that God called out of Ur the Chaldees, is a father. He's a father figure. And he's a father figure of a nation. But it's a special nation. It's a holy nation. And I hope you hear that. When God brought Israel out of Egypt back in Exodus chapter 19, it says, I have brought you unto myself to be a holy nation. Once Israel lost their holiness, they lost their national distinction with God. Because if you read in the Minor Prophets, God specifically told Israel when they had backslidden, it says, You are to me as Gentiles. Why? because you've lost that which separated you and made you a unique group of people, your holiness, your spiritual nature. Read back in the book of Deuteronomy sometime. Why did God call the Jewish people? Number one, He didn't call them because of their wealth. He says you were poor, and neither did He call them because of their number. He says you are least among the earth. He called the Israelitish people because of one thing, their father, Abraham. And Abraham is the sole existence that God would shed his blessing now upon those people down from generation to generation. And why did God choose Abraham? It says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God chose Abraham because he says, I know Abraham that he will teach his children to walk in my ways and my commandments. The reason God chose Abraham that his seed line would become a nation is because it was the faith and the character of Abraham that he would pass on to his children. They would pass it on down, they would pass it on down, and you would have a holy nation. But once the children lost the faith of their ancestor Abraham, then they lost the grace in the eyes of God, and that was it. And so the whole nationalistic thing was never meant to be nationalistic. It was meant to be spiritual from the very outset. It was meant to be a holy group of people. And so it is today. And so this man, when he was called now out of Ur of the Chaldees to be the father, the father of many, he is called now to be the father, not just of any people, not just of Jewish people, but the father of all them that believe. All them that believe. Uh, It's interesting to notice that in Abraham's life, just simply claiming Abraham as being your natural father will get you absolutely nowhere because Abraham had a number of children. He had Ishmael for one and the Ishmaelites were not saved because they had Abraham as their father. He also had the Midianites as his children. The Midianites were continually an opponent to the people of God and the Midianites were not saved because Abraham was their father. Just like the Jews are not saved because Abraham is their literal father. It has to be the characteristic of the faith of that father passed down to that group of people. You go the same down with Isaac. As the blessing and promise goes down to Isaac, say, well, we're children of Isaac. Well, Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. They both had the same father, but God said of Jacob, I love you, but he said of Esau, I hate you. Both had the same father. But it was because the spirit of Isaac was passed on into Jacob's life. and So it was. As we look into the family, the, uh, the family structure of this thing that he was the father now of all, he was the father. As Brother Connor has uniquely brought out in his panorama now earlier, Abraham was the 20th. He was the 20th man from Adam. And that's very unique. Back in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, verses 12 through 14, we read, as God portrayed to Moses, says, When you number the children of Israel, it says, When you number them, you must receive of every one that you number a half shekel of silver. And no man can be numbered in the nation until he has individually paid the half shekel of silver. Nobody can pay it for him. He has to pay it himself. Nobody can pay more and nobody can pay less. It's the same price for each individual person. And that price was paid by everyone who was 20 years of age and older. And the age of 20, the number 20, as Abraham was 20, is the number that represents the man who can be counted as being a redeemed soul into the nation. And it's very interesting because when they went before the elders of Israel, and they paid their half shekel of silver, it says that their names were then written in the book of Israel, the book of God's people. And today as we go and through the work of the silver, the work of atonement, and that's what that money was called, it was called atonement money. As we go and we all come by the same price, the blood of Jesus Christ, who was bought by 30 pieces of silver. As we all pay the same price, our names are numbered in a book. And we become part of a holy nation. A holy nation. So he is 20 now. He is the father of all of these. Uh, Abraham, as he was there and as he was the father of all, as we go back to the Genesis now, the account in Genesis chapter 20, When God speaks to Abraham now, the very first words he says to him are this, Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And then he goes on to pronounce his blessings to them. Abraham is the representative of the father of all who believe. Romans chapter 4. And since he is the representative and the father figure of all who believe, what takes place in Abraham's life is representative of that which must take place in all believers' lives. Here he was living in Babylon, living in captivity, living in sin, a state of confusion, and God says, Get out. Get out the very first commandment that God gave to Abraham on his road of faith was get out. Get out of this place. Leave. And this little admonition of get out is so important and there's many places in the Bible where the theme of get out and separate is used. I'll just give you a couple of them here. It says back in Numbers chapter 16, verse 21, when Korah, and remember the 250 men that rebelled with Korah, And they came up before Moses and they challenged Moses in authority and they said, Moses, you're taking too much responsibility on yourselves. And God spoke to Moses and it says, separate yourself from among them for I am going to show myself now among them this day. And God poured out His judgment now and His fire upon those people, Korah and the 250. And then Dathan in his tent back there, he caused the earth to open up and he swallowed them out. But before God poured out His judgment upon the evildoers, He told to the righteous believers, separate yourself from them. Moses, Aaron, get away from them. Get away from their tents. Get away from what they say. Get as far away from me as you can because I'm going to judge them. Separate yourself. Put a space now between them and yourselves. The book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. Chapter 6, verse 21 We see here now in reference to the remnant that returned from Babylonian captivity. Ezra said unto these men, and remember the people that returned from Babylon, it wasn't all the Jewish people. There were close to a couple hundred thousand Jews that were probably taken captive under Nebuchadnezzar, but there were only 50,000 that returned under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. That left a great portion of them back in Babylon. And the challenge that went up in the, in the story of Ezra under Zerubbabel was, you whose hearts stir up in you, separate yourself now from Babylon and return to the Holy Land. And it's those who experienced the blessings of restoration that were willing to separate themselves. And why didn't the others leave? Very simply... Because for 70 years, they had established businesses, they had established prominence in their communities, and they were comfortable in Babylon. And when the word came to separate yourself from them, they were too comfortable to leave. And so they stayed in Babylon. But Ezra cried out, separate yourselves. Come now back to the promised land. And it amazes me that a people who had been waiting for the promises for years and years and years would forsake the promises of God for some mere comfort. It's a real challenge to all of us not to become complacent, not to become comfortable, because, you know, God's got a tremendous inheritance for all of us who believe. But let me say this. I believe that when God comes on this earth to give his inheritance to the saints, I believe it's going to be a challenge for some people to leave mediocrity and enter into their inheritance. Why? Because we become comfortable in our Christian faith. Because moving means uprooting. It means a time of maybe just being uh, disoriented, a time of pulling up roots and not having all that stability that we want to have and all this. God says, do you want the inheritance? are you willing to travel through the desert a little bit to get it or do you want to stay in Babylon separate yourself now from among them very interesting scripture uh, in Isaiah chapter 52 Isaiah chapter 52 verse 11 now this whole chapter here in Isaiah 52 is a restorative chapter notice how it begins awake awake oh put on thy strength O Zion Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come into the uncircumcised and the unclean. And he goes on to talk about getting up out of the dust and sitting down and putting on their beauty and becoming his beautiful people in the mountains of Zion and go on. And then he gives this admonition in verse 11. If you want to be Zion and you want to put on the beautiful garments and you want to awake and all this, It says, Depart ye, depart ye, go out from among thence. Touch not unclean things. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Separate, depart, go out. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. A very familiar section of scripture to many of you. Here we get the scripture that often is used in counseling and in marriage and in business matters. And it's talking about being unequally yoked. But notice what it says in here. It says in the section on being unequally yoked, it says, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with the infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now the admonition that Paul is giving here now to the church at Corinth, is the admonition of separating yourself from that which is marked by the world. And he is quoting here now the Old Testament, both Jeremiah and Isaiah, and he's saying, come out, come out from among them, separate yourself and touch not the unclean thing. And he gives here a three-part progression in thought in the theme of spiritual separation. Number one, come out. The word in the phrase, come out, puts the responsibility on us. God does not say, I'm going to take you out. He says, come out. We have to be the ones that are willing to leave. It's by a matter of our own choice. But he doesn't leave it at that. He says, come out, number one. And number two, he says, separate yourself. Not only are you to come out, but you're to put a space between you and that which you have come out of. There has to be a line of demarcation, a space to show that there is a true separation. And once the separation has been achieved, then he says number three, then never again by any means go back and come into contact with any of those things back there. And folks, this is what biblical repentance is all about. It's leaving that sin, forsaking it, separating yourself from it to not come near, and then in your life to continue on repentance so as to never go that way and come in contact with it again. That's what biblical repentance is all about. And that's what he's talking about here. You hear the testimonies of people so often that says, well, I was delivered of this and this, and I was a drug addict once, but now, bless God, I can go back and minister to these guys and go into the honky talks and all this That's dangerous. That's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Because unless God has sovereignly touched a man and taken out of him the roots of that sin and that problem, I know because I have talked with alcoholics, they said they even get near the smell of it. And it says they're driven by an impulse that they have to drink. God says, if you are going to be separate from it, He says, you keep a space between you and it, And it says, don't ever touch it. Don't play with it. Don't go back to it, because Babylon's got an intoxicating influence that'll suck you back into its desires and its pleasures so easily. But he says, separate yourself. Notice, if you, if you will, back in here, and I, I taught this to the, the Pauline Epistles class, and I hope that those who are in the class who are here just kind of bear with me. In verses 14 through 16 of Second Corinthians chapter 6, there are five words that are used here five words that are used here to describe a relationship. Speaking now of this unequally yoked relationship or this separatedness. Number one, it says, what fellowship hath righteousness with darkness? And these are all different Greek words. They all express different ideas. What fellowship, and what this means is this, what joint possession does righteousness have with unrighteousness. And what it's simply saying here, in in the classical Greek, it's a picture, a word picture, of two business partners that are functioning in the same business and they both have equal shares in stock. And it says, how can one man who is living unto righteousness share in stock and share a direction of a mutual contract with someone who is diametrically opposed to them? How can you do that? How can you be in a business agreement? Because both of you are going in two directions. It says you cannot. Number two, then, it says, What communion? What communion have life with darkness? The word communion here is a very intimate word. It's simply It's the word that is used for intercourse. It's the word used for the most intimate relationship between two people. It's where two become one. And he's saying here, how is it possible for light and darkness, two opposites, to become one? Because he says, when they join together, they will both change. The light will take on a darker characteristic and lose its glory. And the darkness will become a little lighter, but the darkness will always be gray. It will never become totally light. And what you'll get is a blending. You'll get a gray. And in the middle, and that's exactly what we find with the church at Laodicea, neither hot nor cold, but right in the middle. And it says, how is it possible for two things that are diametrically opposed to have that intimate of a or relationship without you who are the children of light losing somewhat of what you've got? It's impossible. You will suffer some loss in that kind of a relationship. Number three, it goes on to say, and what concord then hath Belial, hath Christ with Belial? The word concord here in the Greek is the word symphoneo, from which we get the word symphony. And it's talking about a harmony where melodies and rhythms blend together in one melodious tune. And it says, how can Christ, the anointed of God, sing a harmony and a symphony with belial, which represents worthlessness and vanity? They can't. They're a discord. They're totally opposite. But what is the songs that we sing? And it's so interesting, the type of music that people listen to. Is it characteristic of Christ or Belial? And so many people try to mix the tempos and the music of Belial with the words of Christ. And what do they come up with? They come up with a discord. They come up with something that neither glorifies God nor gives complete glory to Satan. It's right in the middle. And it doesn't edify. It really doesn't. God says, you can't sing a song with Satan. You can't sing his song. You can sing the song of the Lamb, but not the song of Satan. And then it goes on to say, in what part now, after this, do, do you, it says, what part then does he that believe have with him that is an infidel and does not believe? In the sphere of unbelief, the pie of unbelief, what portion of that pie belongs to faith? There isn't one. The pie is the pie of unbelief and there's no portion in that that is characterized by faith. And if we take up residence in that pie, we are going to take up the character of unbelief. There's no way we can inhabit a part of that sphere of being and maintain the quality of faith within ourselves. And number five, what agreement then, what agreement does the temple of God have with the temple of idols? And the word agreement simply means approval. It boils down to this. Where do we get our approval? Do we look for approval from the world? If we do, we should be careful because what does the world approve of? They approve of abortion. They approve of euthanasia. They approve of useless wars for the sake of monetary gain. They approve of many things that are totally opposed to the Bible. And so the world approves of us. They approve of that no big deal. If they don't have any more sense than not to approve that stuff, their approval is very very small. Where do we look for approval? It's from God. The temple of God. And that's why the highest recommendation that any of us could ever have is not that we have written books, not that we have a set of commentaries with our name on them. Have is well done. Thou good and faithful servant. When it comes from God, God's seal of approval. And so it is now. Separate yourself from them. You can't have a joint partnership. You can't have an intimate relationship. You can't sing the song of the world. You can't find yourself in a position of sharing a space with them. You cannot find your approval. You must be separate. And when God called Abraham, it says, get out and separate yourself from this thing. Stay totally away from it. And notice there's three things here that he had to separate himself from. Number one, it says, separate yourself from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house. challenge given to Abraham was no different than the challenge that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples in the New Testament remember when Jesus came before Pilate and Pilate asked him and says, Jesus are you the king of the Jews and Jesus says yes but my kingdom is not of this world and when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 it says Father they are not of this world Father keep them in this world Father, for they have a country that is different. They have a land that is different. And so just as Abraham had to leave his geographical land, and what is a land the symbol of? It's the symbol of nativity and the symbol of dwelling. Where we found our roots and where we had our abode, our dwelling. And in our conversion near process, there are going to be times when God is going to say, you've got to change your location. Because a place that you're dwelling is not a place that commends the lifestyle that I want you to leave. You must leave. You must leave. And so Abraham now had to leave. And he had to go on. His willingness to move. This is the spirit of Ruth. Remember what Ruth said to Naomi? It says, wherever you go, I will go. And your God, that's my God. That will be my God. The Spirit willing to leave the characteristics of the land. Brother Connor made mention of it and it's, it's right that God took the, the children of Israel out of Egypt just like He took Abraham out of Babylon. But the problem was getting Babylon out of their hearts and getting Egypt out of Israel's heart. Read through the book of Numbers. And read how many times Israel said, Would be to God that we were still in Egypt. Would be to God that we were still back in bondage. The flesh pots and all of this. And when Jacob went back to receive a bride from the land of his father's nativity, and he brought back Leah and Bilca and Zilpah and Rachel, what was one of the problems that they had along the way? They came out of the land of Pandanaram, the land of close to Babylon. But Rachel had to take the little gods of Babylon along with her. She left Babylon. She left the house of her nativity, but she couldn't leave the gods of her forefathers. And when they got to Bethel, Jacob had to bury those gods underneath an oak tree. Just like we have to bury the old gods underneath a tree, the cross. And so it was. And so he had to give up his land And he also had to give up his kindred because he had to leave his relatives behind. Uh, Nahor, it's one of his brothers. We don't have any any direct spiritual implication that Nahor went with Abraham. In fact, when we read the account here, it says that Terah, Sarah, Abraham, Lot, and the servants of Abraham were the only ones that left. So Nahor, his own brother there's a good chance that he stayed behind. Nahor did not share the same faith that his brother Abraham did. And so it is. There's an opportunity and it comes in our lives that even family is not going to share what you have. Uh, In the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 50, notice what Jesus says. He says, one day when he was speaking and the disciples came and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are out here to see you. And Jesus looked out and says, These are my mother and my brothers. It says, All those that will do the will of my Father are my mothers and my brothers. And history tells us that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not accept him as Messiah until after the resurrection. They did not believe the testimony of their brother Jesus, that he was the Son of God. And so Jesus could not be intimidated by their unbelief. And he says, My true kindred are you who do believe. I have to go for my natural people, but I have to go to those who are my spiritual brothers and sisters. And it said also he had to leave his father's house. Interesting, you know what the word terah means? The name terah means delay. God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, but he, had, he delayed in Haran until his father died. God did not call Abraham to Haran. He called him to Canaan. And the little way by the little stopover that they had in Haran was because of a father, a delay. Remember what happened in Jesus when a man came up and said, I would follow after you, but let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. And why did Jesus say that? Because the phrase, let me bury my father, was a platitude in the Jewish language, and it still is today. Just like when you ask a Jew or ask one of you guys out here, will you do something for me? And you say, well, I just don't feel like it, or I'm not feeling too good. We say that. But the Jew says, I've got to bury my father. His father could be standing right there, you know, doing jumping jacks. And he says, my father's dead, I've got to go bury him. It's a scapegoat. It's an excuse. And Jesus says, you have to be willing to leave behind that. Abraham, will you leave your father? Will you leave him there? Terah, history never tells us that Terah accepted the faith. Tradition tells us that Terah was an idol worshiper. In fact, the Talmud tells us that that Terah worshipped no less than 12 idols and that he never understood the faith of his son completely. But yet that did not hinder Abraham. Abraham believed God. He was willing to leave all of these things to follow after God, to go into the land. Just the last closing minutes here, I just want to share a couple of closing remarks here and let Brother Connor pick it up with you. As Abraham went on his journey and he left Haran, he went into the land of Palestine and the very first place that he went, the place of Moreh, the place of Shechem, he built an altar. The characteristic of the man of faith And remember, he's the father of all who believe. He's our example. Just like we have to be willing to leave things behind if they distract or disagree with our faith, Abraham, the man of faith, wherever he went, he built an altar. Because men of faith are men of prayer and sacrifice. And if you study the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you will read that wherever these men went, they built altars. Why? Because their faith went with them. And God was the most important thing to them wherever they went. And so the altars of Abraham were the meeting places and it was on those altars that God communed. It was at those altars that God pronounced His covenants. It was on those altars that God pronounced His promises. And if He is the Father of all who believe, And we are the believing sons of Abraham. We must be children of the altar. We must be willing to set up our altars wherever we go. They aren't just something that Sunday we go to and have a little hallelujah praise the Lord. Our house has to be a place of an altar. Our job has to be a place of an altar. Our car has to be a place of an altar. We must be people of the altar. So it was with this man Abraham. And that's why God loved him. That's why God chose him. And in chapter 14, and, and Brother Connor will now probably pick up and go back on a few points, but in chapter 14 to show exactly how much this principle of separation got into the life of this man, notice that when he came into the land and he was dwelling now up in the regions of Hebron, and one day the kings, there were four kings that came from the plains of Shinar and Elam. And they came to do war now with the five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the plains. And the kings of Shinar took now the kings of the plains and Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And they took Lot and they took his possessions and they took him off into captivity. And Abraham heard about it and he went off to defend Lot. I want you to notice something. The kings that Abraham went to do war with were the kings that came from his home country, Shinar, Elam, and Babylon. So much did Abraham, the father of faith, was he willing to separate himself that he'd even did war with the people that were his own nationality and heritage. Why? Because he had truly separated himself from Babylon. He had gotten out, and he went after them And he went after him and he destroyed them with his 318 faithful servants. And as he came back now from the victory with these kings, he came back now and he met two very important beings. He met the king of Sodom. And he met the king of Salem, Melchizedek. As Abraham comes back from a tremendous spiritual warfare, a warfare against his bondage, a warfare against his sinful past, a warfare putting down all of his heritage. And he comes back after this tremendous victory with all the plunder from battle. He's met by two kings, and who does he recognize? The king of the world? No, Melchizedek. And he goes up to Melchizedek and he says, Melchizedek, you must be the prince of the most high God. And he gave him a tenth of all that he had. And he recognized that this Melchizedek was somehow, some way involved in that tremendous victory over those kings of Babylon. And here he was. And he was blessed. He took p- part in the first communion service. He gave tithes to this man. And he became the father of all who believe. It's a real challenge as you go on and study this man, Abraham, Study his life fuller, the sacrifice, the testing he had to go through. You read about the the 25 years of the challenge of the word of faith upon his life. Even his feeble efforts at trying to raise up an Ishmael and all of this. Yet the characteristic that marked his life from the very beginning was this. He believed God. And when God says, get out, he got out. And in getting out, he was willing to follow the God who he trusts to a land that he didn't know anything about, willing to believe in a promise that was physically impossible. And God says in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, this Abraham is my friend. He's my friend. Why was he his friend? Because he was willing to come out, willing to separate so well, this is the story and this is the calling and I hope that you can just take some of these principles and really apply them to all of us. Not a nationalistic thing. Not at all. But a tremendous spiritual thing. Amen. Be sure to visit KevinConnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry.